Nick at Night is a production of Council Communications. Welcome to the Nick and Night Show, folks. Uh, it's the only <laughs> I had a little fun tonight. I just had to. Uh, I a lot of times when people, you know, the traditional question you get when you meet somebody for the first time that day, they'll say, "How you doing?" Most people say, "Fine, fine, I'm okay, fine." I get a little bored of that, so once in a while I'll change it up and I'll say stuff like, "Well, I kind of feel like a one-legged soccer player." I don't know whether I should kick or run, and I'm not smart enough to sort it out. Well, that's kind of what your host is like tonight. <laughs> oh, man. <clears throat> oh, boy. Anyway, so there's plenty of stuff on the table tonight. But before we get started, you know something? There, I, I, I watched a movie last night. And my wife and I, um, oh, by the way, it was not only our children's first day at school yesterday. Or was it yesterday? This week. Let's say this week because then I'm safe because today's Wednesday, not Tuesday. Anyway, yeah, that would make it because Monday was Labor Day. Yeah. All right. So anyway, they had a um, uh, a day of um, – it was a, a, a new kind of experience. Let me put it to you that way because not only do we now have one, two, three children at home in school and one – is it just – Okay, so there's four kids in school. One's in Algonquin College, and three are still in either in high school or grade school. Well, there's actually a fifth student from our house, and that would be my wife. She has gone back to to uh, uh, school to increase her uh, skills as a um, um, business type person. She wa- administrator. That's the word I'm looking for. She's taking business administration. So it was her first day at school yesterday too. So at the end of the day, you can imagine a 50-year-old woman. Well, actually, she's 29 holding. I should know better than that. Um, but anyway, a woman with a little bit of life experience is the way, best, smartest way to put that. And she goes to school. It wasn't a full day by any stretch. I mean, it was just more of an introduction, you know, and that kind of thing. But by the time it got after supper, she was pretty wiped. And I said, well, let's just put on a movie on TV and, and we'll, you know, we'll watch it. So I thought, I feel like a classic tonight. And no, I don't look like a classic. I look like a lot of things, but classic isn't one of them. Anyway, so I thought, I haven't seen this movie in years. And it was the Disney's The Swiss Family Robinson. 
And I so I put it on. It was made in 1960. So everybody in the movie, except for maybe the little boy who would now be in his. Let me see. I was born in 62 and I'm 55. So he's almost 60 years old himself. Now it's possible a couple of the younger cast members are still alive. But the leading the leading actors and actresses in the movie are long dead. But it was such an absolute joy to watch that movie. It was uncluttered. And when I say it was clean, I don't mean in a perverse sort of way. I'm not talking about um, the kind of movie where you have to worry if you got kids in the room or not. There might be an adult scene in it. No, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm t- when I say it was clean, I mean it was a simple story. Okay? There wasn't all these plot twists. There wasn't, it, it wasn't cluttered. Like if, if you watch, let's take Sherlock Holmes as an example. Now, I love the series, the modern version of Sherlock Holmes with, with um, Benedict Cumberbatch. I think it's a brilliant, brilliant uh, TV uh, series. But it's not the same thing at all as, as, uh, as this kind of movie is. Because you know who the good guys are. You know who the bad guys are. You know there's going to be a conflict. There's a few little interesting twists in it. Or not twists, but just expected plot, you know, deviations to keep it interesting till you get to the big fight at the end. And it was just thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyable. So I'm sitting here watching this. My wife is sitting on the couch beside me. And we're right in the middle of the battle, right, where the pirates are trying to take the hill with all the family crowded at the top, and the, they're throwing coconut bombs, and the little boy's having a, the time of his life, you know, just, just throwing these coconut bombs at the pirates, and the pirates are cursing the fact they have to go up this hill. Uh, so anyway, um, and I'm, I'm almost, I won't say I was on the edge of my seat, but I'm engaged in this movie. I look over, and my wife is out like a light. She is sound asleep. And I went, oh, man. <laughs> the old, there, there was one other time uh, that happened to me. I took her to see the movie The Enemy at the Gates, which I should have known better. Those aren't her kinds of movies. But if you've seen The, the, enemy, the enemy at the Gates, it's about a duel between a Russian and a German sniper during the Battle of Stalingrad in 1942. Okay. So you've got, um, uh, was it Jude Law? I forget who played the Russian sniper, but the other guy was um, uh, Harris, and he played the German sniper. And there's this big duel, and they're in the tractor factory, and one's in a furnace, and the other one's pinned behind a wood stove, and they're du- duking it out. And I, literally, I'm on the edge of my seat. We're in the theater watching this, and I'm thinking, "This is." I know, obviously, the the main character has to get out of this alive. Okay, I'm just curious how he's going to do it. So I'm going. How's he going to get out of this mess? Because he's pinned behind this. I look over. She's out like a light. Snoring sawn logs. It's over. Forget it. I wasted 12 bucks to take her to see the movie. <laughs> so anyway, I just thought I'd start off with a um, uh, Ed Harris. Thanks, Kirby. Uh, Ed Harris. That's right. Um, great actor. Oh, man. You want to talk about a great actor. He's one of them. So anyway, uh, I've decided that uh, her and I... We like series, like we've watched Wallander and we've watched Sherlock and we've watched a bunch of others that we both really got into. And you know what I got sucked into watching was Downton Abbey. Now, I know you guys are all going, what the heck has this got to do with anything to do with politics? Nothing. Nothing. This is just setting the table, relaxing, getting everybody, you know, kind of mentally engaged in the process. All right. So it was just funny that this week getting people uh, to go, uh, getting people off to school and all the logistics that went into that. Because now during the week, my wife and I aren't on the farm. We're in the city. 
So our three youngest are running the farm at home. They're taking care of the chores, and they're, and, uh, they're learning to work together in ways that um, they hadn't had to do before. And see, the thing about living uh, an agrarian lifestyle is responsibility is not optional, which is one of the things I want to get into tonight. Maybe it's a great caveat into the education system. And now, I'm not trying to put my kids up on a, on a pedestal by any means. They're just mere mortals like the rest of us. They have their fails, failings and their faults. As a matter of fact, there was, I won't tell you all the details, but there was a little bit of an issue between my oldest daughter and my youngest son. They... They they came to an understanding, um, shall we? We'll just put it that way and be nice about it. But anyway, the uh, the point is that it, it's there's still animals to look after. It doesn't matter what the weather's doing. It doesn't matter what you know how tired they are when they come home from school because I'm not there to do it. Allison's not there to do it. The animals depend completely on human intervention so that they can, you know, they don't get into trouble. They need to be fed. They need to be watered. If they need, doctoring needs to be done, they need to do it. They, in other words, they have been put in a position now where they have to accept responsibility for things that don't care how they feel, what they want to do at that moment. None of that stuff matters. And it is a great life lesson. And I don't think enough kids get that these days. Now, let me start with this because there's a bunch of outrageous stories in the news this morning, in, in this new, in the news today, about oh, just got to find the right, uh, right set, the right one. Yeah, that's part of it, but that's not the one I want. Come here, you. Technology works great when it works. Uh, there's a story about how here it is. Now, just load the page for me. There we are. Okay, now this is from the Sun today, the Ottawa Sun. And I couldn't believe this. This is in Caledon, uh, here in Ontario, and it's from today. The headline is this, and maybe you've already heard this, but I just couldn't believe my eyes. Ontario grade 9 students to negotiate end-of-term grades. Negotiate. So you're going to have grade 9 students. How old are grade 9 students? 13? 14? 13, 14 years old. And these kids are going to sit down with their teachers and they are going to be, uh, yeah, I believe me, Kevin, I have done some chasing of cattle in the dark myself. Uh, anyway, the, these kids are going to negotiate with their teachers about what their final mark should be. It's a pilot project out of the city of Caledon, like I was mentioning. Let me share just a wee bit of the story with you, lads. All right, a new pilot project at a high school in Ontario will see grade 9 students negotiate their end-of-semester grades with their teacher, an idea some experts say will help keep the focus on learning. Can I ask a silly question? How is that supposed to keep the focus on learning? Will somebody please explain to me how that's supposed to work? Because here's the way I understand negotiation. Let's say you're negotiating on, oh, uh, the price of a car. Okay, you want to buy a car, not a problem. So you sit down and the car is $25,000. That's what the dealer wants for the car. So you go back and forth, you know, with the dealer, trying to make it get the best deal you can, trying to bring the price down. So there's something on the table that both of you want. There's a car on one side and money on the other. The dealer wants as much money uh, as he can get for the car, and you want to keep as much money as possible and still end up with the car at the end of the day. That's negotiation. How does that keep focus on learning? 
I digress. The students enrolled in four courses at the Mayfield Secondary School in Caledon, Ontario, will receive Facebook, will receive, not Facebook, that's, that word is feedback, son, feedback from their teacher throughout the semester, but not grades. At the end of the term, they'll sit down with the teacher and evaluate their coursework and will ideally come to an agreement on, a, on an appropriate final grade. Did, 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 did I wake up this morning on another planet? Did I, did I hit my head? How did this happen? In what universe does this make sense? Can anybody explain to me how you're going to figure out a 12-year-old or a, let's, let's say 14 years old, 13, 13. Let's take a 13-year-old boy, girl, who cares which one. And they sit down. Upon what are they going to assess themselves? Because remember something about, you know what? Here's what you need to keep in mind about a 13-year-old. Ten years ago, they were three. So they're sitting down in a teacher, in front of a teacher who could be 30 years their senior, has educated literally thousands of kids in their, correct, in their, in their uh, career, and they're going to take the input of a 13-year-old about how, what mark that 13-year-old should get? How does this focus anything on learning? You know, what the, you know there's, there's a theme running through the educational stories. I want you to pay attention tonight to tonight. When you understand that, especially in the math curriculum, um, I was listening to terrestrial radio today, and they were talking about how they see the end of textbooks. Like when the teacher goes to order new textbooks, beyond 2018, there are none. Nobody's writing any more math textbooks. Teachers are being encouraged to go create their own math curriculum, to find new creative ways to teach math. Well, as somebody smarter than me said, you know what? There are no new creative ways to teach math. Math is math is math and has been math for thousands of years. And the way to teach basic math. Now, we're not talking about high-end calculus or quadrum. Uh, you know, uh, we're not talking rocket science here. We're talking about addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division. You've got fractions. You've got decimals. Okay? All the stuff, the basic building blocks that science and even daily life is built on. If they can't do that... You're in a world of trouble. So what's, what I'm driving at here is that there is a tendency to lower the amount of work that a teacher puts into it. And I'm not knocking the teacher specifically, okay? This comes from the top, this kind of mentality. Like Kathleen Wynne is, uh, under, uh, is going to be uh, have two major court cases start this week, okay? So all this talk about education, isn't it funny how it's so false within the same week that the liberals are in trouble in the courts? Do we think maybe perhaps this might be, um, this might be, oh, what's the word? Uh, deflection, yes, deflection. Where you, or, or, you know, a red herring where you throw it over there and say, go look at that, go look at that. Don't pay any attention over here. Go look at that. And I think there's, there's a lot of that that's going on in this because you, when you stop and think about this, how, if, if, if the, how can a child negotiate with anybody over anything? If 12, 12 or 13, I mean, now let me take that back a little bit, okay? Because they can negotiate, sure. Like if your 13-year-old comes to you and says, 
you know, Dad, I'm 13. Can I go to bed at 8 o'clock instead of 7.30? I am 13. Okay, there's a little negotiation there. Okay, or could you raise my allowance from 25 to 50 cents a week? <laughs> they might have a point you're being a cheapskate. <laughs> but I guess the point that I'm trying to make is under certain circumstances. But generally speaking, children, we, it's, it's why we don't let them drive. It's why we don't let them vote. It's why we don't let them bear arms for the country. It's why we don't a whole host of things. They can't smoke. Well, they're not supposed to. Um, excuse me. <coughs> they're not supposed to smoke. They can't go to bars. There's all kinds of restrictions we place on youth because they're youth. They are not adults yet. So what exactly is it that they could bring to the table and say, you know, I think I'm uh, a B plus. Teacher says, I don't know. I was thinking C minus myself. No, no, no. Come on, come on, come on. Come on. We got to have a B plus here. I mean, really? That's the way this is going to work? This kind of nonsense, I'm telling you, has got to end. Because I'm getting mighty tired of students uh, playing a, a it just it just doesn't work. You just can't do it. So let me go to the uh, the other one, uh, education story, if I can bring it up. No, really, I need to bring it up. Uh, my computer's giving me grief. Oh, yeah. Um, now, there's a study, I believe it's out of the Fraser Institute, one of the few decent inst- study institutes we have in this country. All right. Uh, this one is talking about how much money we're not, how much we're not getting for the billions poured into Ontario education. Okay, uh, Ontario has increased spending and in public student enrollment in Canada. Let me try that again. The Fraser Institute study. Will you stop? It's I can read, folks. It's just my screen's jumping around. Ontario has increased spending on the public education system by a whopping seven billion over the last decade. Enough, enough, though. Even though student enrollment dropped by more than 5% at that time, according to a new study. That's what I was trying to say. The Fraser Institute Education Spending and Public Student Enrollment Study in Canada also found teachers and staff salaries, benefits, and pensions ate up more than 80% of that massive cash injection. So when a liberal stands there and says, oh, we're spending $7 billion more in education than we did before, so yeah, and about five or six billion of that went to salaries. So how does that and benefits? How does that help the student in the class? I'd love to ask that question. Okay, between two thousand and five and six and two and twenty fourteen fifteen, the most recent year for with Statistics Canada data, public school spending in the province jumped thirty six point six percent from nineteen point five billion to nearly twenty six point six billion. As a companion study, understanding the increase in education spending in a public school in Canada found teacher and staff series salaries, pensions, and benefits rose from 14 to 20 billion during that same time period, and accounted for 84.8 of that extra funding. Now, do you remember not all that long ago that Kathleen Wynne decided she was going to? No, I'm confusing that with the public sector worker, public sectors union. Okay, I was going to accuse her of. of of buying labor peace with the teachers. Although the teachers do come out in uh, in droves to help make sure the liberals get reelected again. Okay. 
All of this additional spending came during a time when kindergarten to grade 12 enrollment in the province fell by more than 115,000 students. The study attributes a 3% decline in enrollment across Canada to slow, growing, or shrinking, depending on the province, school-age population, as well as more parents choosing to either homeschool their kids or send them to independent schools. The study also found per-student cost. Now get this. The cost in the, in nineteen in in uh, twenty oh five oh six in that school year was nine thousand one hundred and ninety dollars. Okay, but by twenty fourteen fifteen that was over thirteen thousand dollars, a dramatic jump of forty four point five. Now let me ask you something. How many of you, if the province were to hand you thirteen thousand dollars per child, couldn't find a reasonably decent? Maybe even bordering on excellent uh, parochial school, private school, uh, a school you know, uh, um, a not uh, one that's not funded by taxpayers directly uh, to provide your child or hire a tutor to provide your child with a with an education that actually teaches things like cursive writing, that teaches them the basics in math, the way it should be taught. You know, teaches them how to read. And I was listening to um, my friend, my colleague, Brian Lilly, and he was saying, you know, reading and, and reading and those kinds of things aren't a problem. Uh, 70% meet the standard. And I thought to myself, no, wait a minute, because there's more to reading than just being able to stumble through Jack and Jill. There's something about, there's something called comprehension. It's one thing to read something, but, like, how many people could actually sit down and take a page and read Latin, you might get through it. But would you understand anything you read? Well, no, of course not. And that's the whole point. The whole point of this is that what you have is a situation where you've got comprehension, I believe, is falling through the floor. I don't think for a moment that we have an education system that really is up to par when it comes to teaching kids how to understand what they read. Because if you can't understand it, how can you digest it? And then how can you use it in your day-to-day life? Whether you're reading about a recipe or whether you're doing calculus or whether you're doing whatever it is, whatever you choose to do in life, you need to be able to understand the things that are written out for you like you know, if you go to work and the boss leaves you, uh, say, a piece of paper with some directions on it, right? And on that thing it says, here's what I want you to do today. And he says, I want you to do A, B, C, D, E. If you, if you can't understand what the words mean, how effective are you at your job? All right. This kind of stuff is just enough to make me crazy. All right. Uh, let's see. There's another story. Where did it go? No, Britain. I thought I had one more on education in here. Maybe I don't. Facebook has given me a bit of grief tonight. Um, and I apologize for that. Come on, load. Just waiting for the page to load. Do, 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 do. Why do I feel like I'm part of a game show? Bork.com, no, I don't need that. Uh, oh, yeah, okay, it wasn't education so much. What it was was a story 
out of uh, Vancouver. And I'm just looking for it now. And this, this gentleman lives in a condo. He's got five children, and he doesn't own a car. And he sends his kids to school. He spent two years teaching these children how to take public transit by themselves. Now, look, I know that there's risks in lives. There's risks in life. And those risks uh, sometimes, you know, will jump up and bite you. But you have to accept risk. It's part of life. So I'm just waiting for this page to load. Well, let me hit that button and see what happens. So he spends this time making sure the kids know the route, know how to how to get around on the um, on the bus so they can get to school back and forth. He doesn't have to hold their hand. And that went fine for about two years until somebody decided they were going to call children's the Children's Aid Society or Children's Protective Services, whatever the B.C. equivalent is of that, and report him. So they came and did a big in, uh, inspection on him and, and found out and found out what was going on and said, oh, no, 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 you can't send them on the bus. That's the same as leaving them at home by themselves. Uh, no, it's not, first of all. And secondly, his argument is we're making... We're, 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 we're trying to raise responsible citizens who can take on responsibility for themselves and not be a burden on society. And at the same time, uh, you know, we want to... Um, oh, come on, load. You know, parents have a right to, to look after the kids, but the state is creating what he calls hover parents. Now, by hover parents, they're the ones who hover pa- over kids and make sure that everything is exactly... Um, you know, that everything's perfectly safe, that nothing bad can ever happen to one of their children. And I understand that to a point, okay? I understand that, especially with, with, um, with mothers, you know, there is a desire to protect your children that is ex- incredibly strong. One of the hardest things, and this is for parents in general, not just, not just moms, but parents in general, to let your children go and do things that the day before they were not ready to do. You know, you have to slowly sever the apron strings. And that's what this father's trying to do, if this page will ever load. I'll tell you more about it. But in general, how do we raise kids uh, who are willing to um, uh, accept responsibility for the things that they do in life, and yet at the same time, we can't get anything. We can't. We, we won't allow them to do anything, and that's the kind of situation where we have. Um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? We just have people who are not um, not willing to take that risk, and I think it's unfair. And I do not know why this is so choppy tonight. Uh, that's the one I wanted. All right, I'm going to try something. I'm going to unplug the, um, let's see if that helps. All right, now you won't be able to hear any music, but let's see if that makes it sound any better. Um, Is it still, for those of you listening on Facebook Live, is it still choppy? Is it, now this is, because I can see it's, when I'm sitting here in front of the camera, I can see it's uh, not, not performing the way it's supposed to either. All right, well, I'm just going to carry on, and if it works, great. Uh, let's see. Oh, man. Take by themselves. Hang in there, folks. We're working on it. 
Video's gone now. All right. I think the only thing I can do... Spinning arrow. Yeah, okay. Video interrupted. So things are not working very well on Facebook Live tonight. Okay, what I'm going to suggest you do, for those of you who can, switch over to uh, LateNightCouncil.com and listen online. I'm going to try to. I'm going to end this feed uh, with Facebook. Although it seems to be working a little better now. Is it still sounding choppy? Is there still is there any video feed? Um, because it seems to be working now. That I've unplugged the jacks from the uh, computer, and I just don't know yet if it's uh, if that's made a difference. If it hasn't made a difference, I'll shut this feed down and I'll bring it back and see if a reboot will make the difference. And if not, well. We'll just carry on and, and uh, do the show anyway. Um, but I know I understand the frustration. So if anybody out there can tell me whether or not the video feed is working, no vid feed still interrupted. All right, let me end the live th this stream. I'll bring it back and see if we can get um, uh, and see if we can make this work a little better. Maybe it just needs a a, a restart. So hang on here. I got to do that. Uh, come on. Copy. Okay, I'm going to end this now, and I'll bring it back in a moment. So uh, um, hang on. We'll be right back. Okay, come on. My video. All right, for those of you listening online, I'm going to get back to the show here in a second. So stay with me for a moment. Yes, I know. No, done. And we'll go to this. Okay, let's try it again. Paste. Go live. All right. All right, let's try that again. See if it works any better this time. Okay, I'm just going to, uh, we'll just let that roll and see what the story is because I don't want to ignore my online listeners either. Okay, if you can hear me online, that's great. Um, if you can't, then we're just going to carry on. Uh, it's good now? Chance to saying it's good now. Okay, good. That's great. So I'm just going to continue. Um, I was talking about this story about when is it too young to allow your children to go on uh, the bus. And to tell you the truth, oh, look, it's loading. Oh, my God, the page loaded. The little victories. All right, so let me share with you a little bit of this story. Um, I have to actually, what I'll do is I have to take a break. So give me a, just just to play a couple of commercials. I haven't done that yet today, tonight, and I don't want my sponsors getting mad at me. So when we get back from this quick little break, I'll tell you about this Vancouver single father of five uh, and what his situation is now that I can actually read the story. We'll be right back. Stay right there. EMM Group is the authorized Integraspec distributor for the greater Ottawa area, providing technically advanced insulated concrete farms. The design virtually eliminates waste while providing the ultimate energy-efficient, quiet homes and structures. With over 40 years' experience in the concrete industry, EMM offers the best product to homeowners and contractors. Canadian-made Integraspec is now being used worldwide. More info can be found at Integraspec.com. Don't consider building any other way. Call your ICF specialist, 613-835-2600. 
Ron Barr, General Manager and CEO of the Greater Ottawa Truckers Association, the voice of independent truckers in the Ottawa area and proud supporters of Nick at Night. Every day we go to work to help build a better eastern Ontario and safety is our top priority. Every start of the shift, our drivers perform inspections on their trucks so we ensure that our drivers go home to their families each night and you, the public, have confidence that the big truck beside you is safe. If you have any issues relating to any size truck, I encourage you to contact me at 613-738-1639. Let's build a better, fatality-free Ottawa together. Okay, let's go back at it here. Um, I know that people are saying they can't hear the commercials on Facebook. I understand that. It's just the way things were working. It, it was causing the show to be very choppy and unlistenable. So um, I'll play the. I will roll the commercials when they're supposed to roll because there is obviously an online audience I have to keep in mind. So I want to, and I want my sponsors to understand that it's you know technical difficulties won't stop us from playing their commercials. So um, because that's how we stay on the air. All right. So let me go to this story right here. Here it is. Okay. So according to the National Post, here's the scenario. A Vancouver single father of five of five children, ages 5 to 11, is accusing the B.C. government of overreach after he was told that allowing his four oldest kids to take the bus to school on their own put them at risk. Adrian Crook, who runs a video game design consulting business and maintains a blog called Five Kids, One Condo, says he started allowing his children... Uh, oh, wait a minute. I skipped a paragraph. There we are. Says he started allowing his children to take unsupervised trips last spring to teach them to be independent and instill them, still in them values of values surrounding sustainability. The family does not own a car, but someone lodged a complaint to the provincial ministry of children and family development, and an investigation got underway. In a letter from a ministry lawyer dated August second, Crook was told the court would like to agree, would likely agree that his arrangement raises protection concerns. Arguably, a child moving around in the community exposes the child to at least the same level of risk as being at home alone, if not a greater risk, the letter said. Crook said he was floored by the ministry's cover-your-ass decision and says the helicopter style of parenting being promoted, which the parents hover over their children to minimize exposure to risks, is the reason why we are now seeing so many infantilized young adults who need their parents to accompany them to job interviews. It goes on, but you know what? I think he's right. And the other question I wanted to mention, or the other point I want to make here, is that when you are doing this, when first of all, he's sending them together. He's not sending the five-year-old out on their own. On, on, you know, the child's not at five years old not getting on a bus by themselves. That would be unsafe. That would be unreasonable. That would be dangerous. He's sending them all as a group. They can look after each other, right? Nobody's going to mess with a herd of kids. If you've got five children, five to 11, they can look after each other. You know, the 11-year-old will be responsible for all the other ones, and they'll all learn to work together and stay safe. That's what the father was trying to teach them, at least as I read it. So I'm sitting here thinking about this and thinking about the story and saying, who is it to decide? Is is this the kind of thing we want the state to decide, or is this another case of the state in... Uh, interfering in parental rights. So I'm just, it's it's one of these scenarios where the state, again, is getting in the way of, now maybe you and I might disagree with this father's judgment, but it's his call to make. He knows the risks. He lives in the community. 
based on what we know of in this from the story, he seems like a pretty level-headed, reasonable guy. So why, why would the state interfere? Look, I'm not saying there's never a case for the state to interfere inside a family. If you've got real, um, if you've got uh, real neglect or abuse going on, then yeah, you have to step in. Like if if you found out that. Um, there was, you know, a child is being severely beaten every night when it went home. And, you know, boy or girl, whatever it is. Um, those would be situations where, okay, because now you're, ta- you're crossing the line from parentage, parenting to criminality. If, you, if a child's life is at risk, okay, yeah, I get it. I'm not trying to say that, you know what, come hell or high water, mom and dad are, are the God, because we have seen egregious cases where parents are their children's worst enemies. We had a case last year with an RCMP officer. One of the most horrible stories I'd ever heard. An 11-year-old boy. Do you remember that story? It was about, about a year ago. It was chained in his, in his... His parents chained him in the basement. He was skin and bones. And how he survived, I don't know. But the 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 bottom line is... While that's true, there are cases like that. The vast majority, the vast majority of parents don't treat their kids that way, love them more than life itself, would move mountains to make sure that those kids are taken care of. Uh, All kinds of different, oh, how do I put it? They just, like, I don't think I'm unique in the fact that I care about my kids the way that I do. I think it's common. I think a lot of people love their children. I think a lot of people want the best. And when I say a lot, I mean the vast majority. You know, why do you think they care about what kind of education they're getting? Why do you think about what why do you think parents care about what their kids eat even if their parent even if their kids don't? Because they want them to grow up healthy and they want them to grow up strong and they want them to be able to step out into the world and make their own mark and, and way in the world. It's just that our governments are not supporting families in the least. And that's the problem. So now in Vancouver, you've got this poor guy. He's out there trying to be a good parent. And you and I might not take the same route. But he's not in a situation where he's abusing his kids. Okay? There's no, there's no you know, uh, broken bones. There's no verbal or physical or, or emotional abuse anywhere mentioned, even hinted at in the story. So what's his big crime? Why would we do that to the guy? The answer is because somebody somewhere has got to justify their job. That's the answer. And that's the kind of thing that just makes me lose my mind when this is far too important, far too um, relevant uh, to people's everyday lives to just sit and shrug your shoulders at. I just don't get it. Now, I want to move on to uh, one of the one of the bigger stories. Uh, where are you? Oh, did you know, by the way, there are... Um, I had a friend of mine send me um, a link from the Weather Channel. I posted on Facebook. There have been water spouts. Now, for those of you not familiar with water spouts, those are just tornadoes out over a body of water. And he sent me a bunch of pictures from the Lake Ontario uh, area. Uh, Lake Ontario, where did it say? Uh, let's see. Georgian Bay, Sudbury, and North Bay 
uh, along the shores of Lake Huron and Georgian Bay. Yeah, so this is up in the, not in Lake Erie, but Ontario and in the northern part of the lakes there. Uh, they've got water spouts, which are tornadoes that just haven't hit land. So we have our own issues. Now, it's nothing like Hurricane Irma. Like when you look at the, the pictures, I'm, I'm looking at a website now that shows some of the devastation from Hurricane Irma. And I was never, when I was in the Navy, we were fortunate never to have to go try to transit a hurricane. We've been through some rough weather. There's no doubt about it. Like we skirted a few, but nothing, nothing like what this, what this is the most powerful storm ever recorded in the Atlantic. And, you know, the kind of devastation, there's a picture here of it looks like what used to be a marina. And there are, there, the cars are up to their, you know, their windshields in water. Uh, trees are toppled over. And it doesn't say where the picture is. But holy mackerel, it's down in the Caribbean somewhere. But there must be 150 boats in the background, smashed, upturned, uh, thrown over on their sides, just, you know, absolutely destroyed. Now, if that'll, I can just imagine what the rest of the, of the place looks like. And it's heading for Florida. So the people in Florida have to really buckle down uh, and get ready for this. And it's one of the things um, I'm kind of grateful for. Living where we do, you and I here in, in eastern Ontario and different parts of the country, we sometimes have severe weather, and it can be very dangerous. I remember the tornado that went through Combermere about 10 years ago. Hard to believe it was that long ago already, but it's about 10 years ago, and it absolutely flattened a whole trailer park community. It just, And when I talk about trailer park, I'm not talking about, you know, I'm talking about a camper park where people pull their trailers to and spend the summer there. Uh, it took down... 200-year-old white pines, you know, they're three feet across and 80 feet high and snap them off like matchsticks. Now, but that's very localized. The kind of damage you see when you hear about uh, cases like Irma, uh, this hurricane, I don't think, unless you've actually been through one, and I'm certainly not going to sit there and say that I know what's going on, you know, that I have an appreciation for how damaging these are. I have no idea. I've never been through one. But looking at the images, I hope to God we never have to go through one because, man, I'm telling you, the damage down there, if you haven't seen it, just Google Hurricane Irma images and it'll blow your mind what's going on. Now, with that said, did you know that there are uh, there is uh, down in Windsor, uh, across from Detroit, that's my, my youthful stomping grounds, I grew up down there, uh, it says Essex County, of which Windsor is part of, is literally as flat as the tabletop my laptop now rests on. And they measure the drop in the land. Like when you when you survey, there's always a grade to the land, right? It runs so many. Uh, if you take a um, over, let's say if you went over a mile, you could measure the drop, usually measured in feet. In there, it's measured in quarters of an inch. I mean, it really is. It's an old lake bottom. And it is absolutely as flat as a plate. So the reason I mention it is because right now, uh, or at least as of two days ago, they had received almost 10 inches of rain in 48 hours. Downtown Windsor was flooded. Uh, the hospital was flooded. There's cars, pictures on Tecumseh Avenue down there that uh, there was one truck. And he looked like he was a boat. Because the water was right up to the above the headlights in a pickup truck, so it's not like a little you know Nissan Versa or 
uh, a little Fiat or something like that, a tiny little car with a periscope up trying to play submarine. This was a pickup truck because they're probably about a foot and a half, a foot to a foot and a half higher, depending on the truck, than your normal car is. And even it was up to a, so. I'm not trying to, and I'm not trying to say that, you know, they're going through the same thing as what's happening down in 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 the Caribbean, but they've got their own issues too. And I hadn't even heard about it until somebody sent me a note saying, "Did you know?" No coverage. I think somebody, when I was talking to another individual about it, said, "I think I heard it once mentioned on CBC in passing." Now, granted, like I said, it, it wouldn't warrant the kind of uh, the kind of trouble that uh, Irma would warrant as far as coverage is concerned. But at the same time, this is happening almost in our backyard, and nothing, nothing. I just found it odd. They would spend so much time talking about, you know, a hurricane down south. We've got real flooding and Canadians in trouble here in, in Canada within seven hours of where I now sit. You know, their basements are flooded. They're going through the same thing that uh, happened in the valley uh, in April. When all that, uh, when when the uh, flooding took place here in the Ottawa Valley, and many of you sitting here uh, listening to me probably went through that too, so it's not unique to um, situation. But look, Harvey uh, and then Irma on top of it, Harvey, the Hurricane Harvey, they figured dropped nine trillion trillion with a T gallons of water onto Texas and Louisiana. I can't even imagine. The, the, the difference in magnitude is, is just indescribable. When I was doing some research on this uh, issue about the size of the hurricane, uh, Harvey was a Category 4, which is sustained winds up to 156 miles an hour. Irma is the top category. There's five categories. Irma is a Category 5 with su- sustained winds over... 157 miles an hour. They've clocked her sustained winds at 185 miles an hour. That is insane. Now, there comes a point where it doesn't matter how hard the wind blows because it's going to rip roofs off. It's going to tear things up. So, in other words, whether it's 185 or 200, 210, who cares, right? Your house is still destroyed. So... Our thoughts and prayers are with those people down there in the Caribbean and in Florida. Uh, they've already began evacuation proceedings. North Carolina and Georgia are beginning to take, make preparations in case, in case it swings north. So you really got to feel, and I have actually a cousin of mine that lives down in Houston um, and went, was going through some of that. From, all, from what I understand, uh, they're fine, but... Boy, I'll tell you, to get a hammer blow like that, this reminds me of about, it was another one about uh, 10 years ago, where two or three hurricanes hit Florida, one right after another. And it seems to be, because now there's another hurricane forming out in the in the Atlantic, but they don't know which way it's going to go yet. So they're keeping an eye on it. Uh, but they're just, uh, oh, there she is. Look at that. Sherry, I didn't know you were listening. <laughs> oh, yeah, Sherry is uh, uh, my cousin. And uh, she was living down, uh, was it Houston, Sherry, or Austin? Houston. And uh, obviously you survived the flood, so I'm glad to see that. All right, so anyway, I'm going to play another couple of commercials. Uh, Please stick around. We've got more to talk about when we get back right after this.
For 17 years, I've been taking my cars to Irwin's Automotion. 17 years ago, Irwin was renting space on the corner of Bank and Heron. His encyclopedic knowledge of all things mechanical and his no-bull honesty has resulted in his second move. He now operates a huge facility on Cleopatra, eight bays and an expert staff that operate all in the same wavelength. Honesty, integrity, try to save the customers some money and headaches, but fix it right the first time. Irwin's Automotion, 34, Cleopatra. Tell them Council sent you. That'll make them smile. EMM Group is the authorized Integraspect distributor for the greater Ottawa area, providing technically advanced insulated concrete farms. The design virtually eliminates waste while providing the ultimate energy-efficient, quiet homes and structures. With over 40 years' experience in the concrete industry, EMM offers the best product to homeowners and contractors. Canadian-made Integraspec is now being used worldwide. More info can be found at Integraspec.com. Don't consider building any other way. Call your ICF specialist, 613-835-2600. All right. Now, switching to another topic. Just because I can. There's a story in the Toronto Star I never thought I'd see, or a headline. And look, the Toronto Star is about as liberal a paper as it gets in Canada. And, you know, you got to at least give them credit in the fact they've never disguised the fact. They have always said they're a liberal paper. They will always be a liberal paper. So at least you know where they're coming from, and I can respect that. But this headline I never thought I'd ever see printed on their, uh, in their editorial page. Canada should rethink position on missile defense. Yeah, you heard that right. Now, of course, it has to do with the little greaseball Kim Jong-un uh, and his messing around with nuclear weapons. But in the article, they say, you know, maybe this idea of a missile... Remember, for those of you old enough, do you remember Ronald Reagan... Uh, Taking the um, taking a page from uh, John F. Kennedy's playbook, when he called on the scientific community to develop a system of defense against intercontinental ballistic missiles, and how the, with t- modern technology we should be re- able to render this method of delivering the world's most devastating weapon obsolete, and I could, for the life of me, for all my life, for as long as I've known about this, I could never figure out why people would resist it, why people would say, "No, we can't have that." No, no, no. Uh, that's a bad idea. How is that possible? How is rendering an intercontinental nuclear ballistic missile obsolete something you don't want to do? I don't get it. Look, it's, you know, I get it, it takes a lot of money. It takes a lot of time and effort. But just like the space program, when Kennedy called on the community, the scientific community, with its, uh, you know, its uh, NASA under the umbrella of NASA, there were tremendous spin-offs, everything from the microwave to uh, cordless tools, uh, sticky, was sticky notes? I don't know. Anyway, there's, I'm sure if I Googled it, I could find you a list as long as your arm about the things that we now enjoy in everyday life that were a direct result of the research that went, in, went into developing the space program. So what's to say that we weren't going to be able to see um, uh, wasn't going to be able to see the similar kinds of spin-offs from a technological point of view by developing a uh, space-based anti-ballistic missile uh, defense shield. Now, a lot of some of the resistance to it came in the form of, uh, well, we don't want to weaponize space. 
dude, you're about 60 years late. The day Sputnik went up, space became weaponized. And it's fun. I get you, you tell that to be. Oh no, no, that's just satellites, right? So tell me how much difference the technology is to putting a satellite into orbit and putting a nuclear bomb on the top of a rocket and lobbing it across the ocean. How much difference is there? And I'm sure there are there is some difference, but not much. I mean, look, if you're lobbing a 50-megaton warhead at Chicago and you land it in Waukesha, Wisconsin, do you really care? You know, it's just, you know, the, the, it's not, it doesn't have to be smack-on accurate. You're not target shooting with a 22 rifle. What you're doing is you're simply using it to wipe out massive areas of, uh, of a country and make, make them uninhabitable, plus kill as many people as possible. That's the whole point of a nuclear weapon. They're so horrible that, and so terrifying that no sane person would ever want to use one. Well, now we have this little grease ball in North Korea who's busy chucking missiles all over the place and testing these things underground, making it plain to anybody with eyes in their head and a brain in their, between their ears that he wants to play in the nuclear sandbox. So when the Toronto Star came out and said, you know, maybe this isn't such a bad idea. I was floored because they, for a long time, were not interested in it. So let me share a little of this with you. It becomes clear by the day that the world has badly underestimated North Korea and its egni... <laughs> Why do people do this to me? Agnomatic leader Kim Jong-un. On Sunday, it carried out its sixth nuclear test that needed what it claimed was a hydrogen bomb, and it's expected to conduct its third test of an intercontinental ballistic missile any day now. Far from being intimidated by fire and fury rhetoric of Donald Trump, North Korea is stepping up its nuclear program. It's going faster than almost any outsider predicted, making a coordinated international response even more urgent. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was right over the weekend to urge action through the U.N. to try to deter the Kim regime. I've got news for anybody who thinks that that's a good idea. You are fooling yourself. Now, when I say that's a good idea, I'm saying using the U.N. to try to deter Kim Jong-un. It hasn't worked this far. Tell me what tin pot dictator has been deterred by the U.N.? None that I know of. They don't listen. They don't care. Remember who this little maniac is. He lives in a fairy tale. No, it's, I won't call it a fairy tale land. He, if you were to, to create a fantasy world and put Kim Jong Il, Kim Jong Un in it, it would be Mordor from Lord of, Ra- Lord of the Rings, and he lives on Mount Doom. It's a complete suspension of reality in that country. He actually believes his own press releases. He thinks he can take on the United States and win. It's just crazy. It's absolutely crazy. So for for um other than the other than the only reason I think that somebody might go to the UN and say, "Look, we got to do something about this guy," is so that when it's over, you can say, "I tried everything. I even went to the United Nations." Because they've never been able to solve any crisis like this before. the whole You realize that this whole problem started, it didn't start with Obama. It didn't start with Clinton. It didn't start with Trump. It didn't start with 
it goes all the way back to the Korean War. Do you know why? Because the ter- technically, the Korean War never ended. It never ended. They signed an armistice. There was no peace treaty. They are te- North and South Korea are still technically at war. Why? Because the head of the UN Security Council was a Russian. The Russian, the Chinese, the Chinese communists were supporting uh, North the North Koreans. Yet communists on either side of the border, is it any wonder it became a stalemate? So. What I'm saying, folks, is that the UN is, is, is a completely inept and, and completely useless organization. So the only reason you would ever go to the UN is just to say, I flipped over every rock in an effort to be able to bring this to, to find a way to talk our way out of this so we don't have, you know, millions of people dead in a war that we could have avoided. So anyway, I digress. Talk is always the best option, and the United States and other countries should do everything they can to encourage a diplomatic settlement. But it's hard to talk to someone who doesn't want to talk to you, and at this point, the North shows no interest in working out a solution to the growing crisis. Amen to that. And they go on and they talk about a bunch of other things, but the bottom line is the Toronto Star has now come out and said, oh my, we need a missile defense system. No kidding, where were you 20 years ago? You know, all of a sudden, it wasn't it wasn't such a great idea then. But all of a sudden, think about it: if they had actually followed what Re- what Reagan had said back in in uh, uh, that be the mid '80s, sometime I'm not sure exactly when he launched uh, when he made that plea to the scientific community to go out and uh, and uh, bring that. Uh, thing to fruition if they'd actually put the kind of energy in and into it it requires we wouldn't have this problem or at least it would be much diminished because not only would it protect north north america because a missile defense shield you know they're not just there's no wall you can't put a wall up and says yeah you can land them all you want in canada but it's not coming to the united states it's not like a you know a chain link fence you've got to have a, a system that covers the whole country the whole continent so, but we'd be so much further down the road. And people wonder why I don't like the UN. Well, here's one reason why. Because they're complete, um, they just have no sense of what's really going on uh, in the world. And they either if they do, then they don't seem to want to put any effort in. It's always about, um, you know, a handful of countries running the show and everybody else just gets to sit there and look smart, even though they're not. All right, I am going to take a short break. When we get back, we'll have more right after this on the Nick at Night Show. For 17 years, I've been taking my cars to Irwin's Automotion. 17 years ago, Irwin was renting space on the corner of Bank and Heron. His encyclopedic knowledge of all things mechanical and his no-bull honesty has resulted in his second move. He now operates a huge facility on Cleopatra, eight bays, and an expert staff that operate all in the same wavelength. Honesty, integrity, try to save the customers some money and headaches, but fix it right the first time. Irwin's Automotion, 34, Cleopatra. Tell them Council sent you. That'll make them smile. 
Ron Barr, General Manager and CEO of the Greater Ottawa Truckers Association, the voice of independent truckers in the Ottawa area and proud supporters of Nick at Night. Every day we go to work to help build a better eastern Ontario, and safety is our top priority. Every start of the shift, our drivers perform inspections on their truck, so we ensure that our drivers go home to their families each night, and you, the public, have confidence that the big truck beside you is safe. If you have any issues relating to any size truck, I encourage you to contact me at 613-738-1639. Let's build a better, fatality-free Ottawa together. All right. Now, staying with the communist theme, there is, for anybody who thinks that socialism is the way to go, I would suggest you take a long, hard look at what's going on down in Venezuela. Because I'm telling you something. If there's... If there is a, um, how do I put it, poster child for how badly things can go in a socialistic uh, society, Venezuela's it. And if you doubt me, listen to this. Venezuela's opposition published photos this weekend of men butchering a dead dog on the streets of Caracas preparing to meet for cooking in a nation that has been forced to take extreme, increasingly extreme measures to avoid a famine. The photos show two men in Quinta Crespo, Caracas, standing on a street corner butchering the body of a dog. A representative, a representative of Vente Venezuela, an opposition party that has taken a hard line against dialogue with the socialist regime, posted the photos online as proof of how rapidly, of how rapid the decline of Venezuela's society has been since Hugo Chavez dismantled the nation's, the nation's capitalist economy in the two thousand in the two thousands. While the dictatorship gives away five million to the United States and others are considering governorships, and others. What? I don't. That doesn't make sense. While the dictatorship gives away five million to the United States and others are considering governorships, Venezuelans are Venezuelans are eating dogs. This is the result of eighteen years of misery and socialist and socialism, and we have a responsibility to denounce it. But above all, do what is necessary to change it. To wait another year is to prolong hunger, allow more deaths. It is pain. How much more we will ask the people to, to withstand? Vente Venezuela, led by opposition leader Maria Corina Machado, yeah, has been the most vocal opponent of the opposition participating in an upcoming gubernatorial and mayoral elections. The largest opposition coalition, the Democratic Unity Roundtable, or MUD as it's called, has agreed to nominate candidates in regional elections, angering many Venezuelan protesters and significantly damaging the morale of protesters that has taken to the streets on a daily basis since March. The council includes multiple members of parties of the Socialist International. All right, so what I'm trying to tell you is that socialism is hardly, hardly, hardly a prescription for prosperity and success. No matter, you know, it's funny because if you watch... If you actually understand what's my, let me rephrase this. The way that I look at the difference between socialism and communism really isn't all that hard to figure out. In socialism, the government controls everything. In communism, the government owns everything. And then apports out to the people their whatever they figure is their fair share. And one of the best books... If you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. On the topic is called Animal Farm. It's I, I can't believe they actually let us read it in high school. Although again, that was 
decades ago. All right. So that kind of thing just kind of makes me go, why would anybody support a system like that? And you still have people who who want to knock capitalism. Now, look, capitalism isn't perfect. Not by a long stretch. It's just the best there is. You know, uh, how does it? Uh, democracy isn't the best system. It's the worst system ever devised by the man. The worst system we have, but it's... I forget the... I'm getting the quote wrong, but it may not be the best, but it's the best of the worst or something like that. It's a Churchill quote. I should know it, but I just can't think of it right off the top. Hi, Robin. Nice to see you. Uh, let's see. Um, I guess what I'm trying to say is that if we continue down our own path here uh, with this whole idea of more socialism, more socialism, more socialism, because our education systems based on socialism, our healthcare systems based on socialism, uh, many of our government programs are all nothing but disguised socialistic programs. CPP, you name it, you know, and all of it is is nothing more than using our own money to bribe us into voting for people who use our own money to bribe, bribe us to vote for them. And we fall for it over and over and over again. And it's just really, really frustrating when you hear it or when you see it. All right, now speaking of uh, socialism, there is... Where did it go? I think... No, that's Britain. No. Venezuela doctors. Here it is. Okay. If you think that the government is going to get away with things without a fight, you're in for a shock because doctors... You've heard about this new tax plan by the um, uh, the federal Liberanos, right? They want to uh, put an end to what they call income sprinkling. And one of the groups they're going after... It's not the only group, but the 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 poster child for this attack is family practitioners, doctors. Now they decided they've had enough of this, and they want to go and and uh, put the put the heat on some of the uh, liberal MPs. Uh, and here's what the headline is: This is from the CBC News, uh, Ottawa, uh, uh, Ottawa doctors arrive at Kelowna retreat to tell liberal MPs that they won't sm- stand for small business tax changes. Doctors are warning that the Liberal government's proposed changes to the small business tax regime could force female physicians to leave the profession, and some have traveled to the National Liberal Caucus meeting to turn up the heat on skittish MPs. Dr. Gigi Osler, the newly elected president of the Canadian Medical Association, hosted a roundtable with doctors in Kelowna, B.C. on Tuesday at the same hotel where the Liberal Caucus will meet this week. A clear message from doctors who say they won't stand for these changes. The CMA hopes to corner Liberal MPs on the sidelines of the meeting and ask them to put pressure on Finance Minister Bill Monroe to abandon his proposals. Two-thirds of family physicians under the age of 35 are women, and they often don't have access to maternity leave programs available to many wage earners, Osler said. Many doctors rely on so-called income sprinkling, paying their spouses to stay home and raise children while they work to pay student debts uh, accumulated from years of schooling. Monroe has proposed measures to curtail income sprinkling, a change that would affect an estimated 50,000 families. <sighs> the bottom line, what drives me nuts about these kinds of stories, and if you've listened to me for any length of time, you know that I love to rail about taxes. Um, and I can't help it, because taxes is what the government uses as a, as a bludgeon to make sure that we stay, you know, we stick to the narrative. We do what they want. Because if we don't, if we can you imagine making too much money? Well, the government can, 
And every time you go up a little bit in income, they take a little bit more. A progressive tax system is the most unfair method of taxation uh, conceivable. Other than the outright 100% tax grab, uh, anything short of that, progressive is next in line. Now, what I think people need to be reminded of is what taxes are for in the first place. Why did we as a society agree to allow ourselves to be taxed by uh, whatever organization is in charge of running our affairs uh, on a nation on a national level? And the reason we have governments, because uh, before you have to answer that question, you have to answer what, what are governments for in the first place. In my opinion, governments are for doing things that you and I need done, but we do not have the skill, expertise, or resources to do for ourselves on our own. So in other words, let's take NAFTA. Okay, you want to have a trade deal. Never mind whether NAFTA is good or bad. Let's just take that as an example of where the government actually has a role. They can go to a foreign government like the United States and Mexico and work out a trade deal that's beneficial to us from our perspective. Okay, it's got to work for the Mexicans and the Americans too, but we want some advantages out of this deal. Now, you and I don't know the intricacies of inter, uh, interborder, intercontinental trading, uh, but there are certainly a lot of people out there who do. So the government takes that on as a responsibility. That's one example. They go in and they're supposed to do what's best for the people there who, who elected them. That's part of the reason why they elected them. Maintaining the borders, okay, which they're not doing a very good job of right now. We all know what's going on in Quebec. So these are the kind of things that the government does because you and I do not have those three things we need, the time, the resources, and the skills to be able to do them for ourselves. Can you imagine if you ran a, um, oh, let's say a Smarties factory, and you wanted to ex uh, export them to the United States, if you had to go to the U.S. government and work out a trade agreement with them so you could import the, your Smarties all by yourself, quite a job. Even on the state level, it would be quite a job. Okay, so in other words, that's part of the role. You look at uh, things like harbor security, making sure that airplanes don't fall out of the sky, making sure infrastructure is done properly, bridges, just don't get liberals to build them. Uh, all kinds of different things like that are what makes governments uh, necessary. They're a necessary evil, but they are necessary. So with that as, as setting the table, if I can put it that way, now you have to look at this and say, all right, what does that mean? Okay, what it, it means that the government's going to need, because everybody needs it, the government is going to need a certain amount of money to operate with. They have to hire people. They have to, um, you know, have assets. If you're going to have a military, they're going to need hardware. If you're going to have port inspectors, they're going to need offices, and they're going to need, you know, all these different things. If you're going to have trade uh, teams who deal with trade, they're going to need um, everything from computers, desks, and offices to actually travel allowances to go and work on our behalf. All these are things that you and I can't do, right? But at the same time, um, there's a limit, Okay, there's a limit. At some point, we cross that threshold where now they're doing things we could do for ourselves. And again, I'm, I'm going to sound like an old, uh, like a, an old fossil here, but there were days, uh, there was a time when healthcare was not the purview of the government. 
That was something that was taken care of within the community. In the city of Pembroke, just up the road from here, about an hour and so from where I now sit, there used to be four privately funded hospitals in that city. Pembroke has about, if I'm, I'm guessing, but I think about 10,000 people in it. So obviously at that time, now maybe there were a few more, but let's say that 100 years ago there was four people, there was uh, 10,000 people in Pembroke. They were able to scrape together enough money to build, maintain, and staff four hospitals. Now, I understand that the cost of running a hospital is different now than it was then. Technology wasn't the same. Healthcare wasn't the same. I understand that. But what it did mean is that if somebody in that community needed health care and they walked into a hospital and they were refused because they didn't have the money to pay for it, the community took that up with the board of directors of that hospital. And if they didn't get the right answer, they took their money and went over to the other three. That's how community health care works, or at least that's how it used to work. Same thing with a lot of the social services you see. Um, you know, dealing with people who are homeless, dealing with children with no parents, orphan and orphans and so on. There used to be institutions to do that, all privately funded. Now the state looks after it all. And every time they take over something, somebody's going to get hired, somebody's going to get a job, somebody's going to have to get paid, somebody's going to have to have an office and all the infrastructure and logistics that go into that, and our tax rates have to go up to accommodate that. And... In the beginning, it's not such a big deal because the amount of money they take out of your paycheck is not that great. Like when we first had um, personal income tax back to pay for World War I, it was 3% was the income tax rate. Unless I, I'm going by memory now, so uh, I, I didn't bother to look this up before. But 3% of the population, okay, the top 3% paid 3% of their income. And that was where it started. And every, every year or every so often, they'd up the percentage and lower the bracket and up the percentage and lower the bracket to the point now where we're paying about half of our income to fund this monster. And now it's reached a point where it's like a multi-headed hydra, you know, a, a many-headed beast. You can't kill it. You can't... You can't <coughs> excuse me. You simply can't bring it down anymore. And if you do try, oh, the crying and the whining that goes on. You know, oh, we can't do without, and you list the department, and you're going to find people, most of which who work in that department. Like, I've used this example before, but let me just give you this example again, maybe for those of you who haven't heard it. Uh, if we were to do, let, let's say that you and I were running the government, and we said, okay, look, government's too big. Let's go and see what we can do about making it smaller and less costly. Let's lighten the burden of running the government on the back of the taxpayer, okay, and make their load a little less onerous. So you know those little license plate stickers? I think they're 120 bucks now or depending on the car you drive. It used to be, I remember a time when it was based on the number of cylinders you had under the hood. Even that wasn't fair. But anyway, the point was they always get worse over time. But I think the last time I put tags on a car was about 120 bucks. Anyhow, whatever the fee is. So if we were to say, all right, we're going to scrap that. We're going to save money on, a, on several. First of all, yes, there's the loss of income. I get that. 
Okay, but there's several ways to offset that. Number one, you don't have to print the stickers anymore. Now, that's not billions of dollars, I know, but that's money you don't have to spend now. You don't have to have staff. Uh, you don't have to have, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Staff trained to do this, to fill out the forms, so you save the money on the printing of the forms for these stupid little things. In other words, there's a ripple effect. So even though all you did was cancel one little program, and yes, there might be some job layoffs and people don't we don't need anymore because that position is no longer is no longer um, necessary. But overall, who you got to remember who's footing the bill? It's it's like the old gun registry. There were two hundred jobs within the gun registry. Well, we never should have had those jobs in the first place being paid for by the public. So it's unfortunate those people who had that jobs uh, had those jobs had to lose them. But overall, we saved ourselves a ton of money, and that's what we have to keep in mind, is it's up to you and I to foot this bill, and we should have a say in how big that bill should be. So that's just one example. Now, if you start thinking about some, some other examples, okay, um, why do we have to have, um, I think, oh, the College of Trades. Okay, let's scrap that. Why do we need the College of Trades? The College of Trades was put in place by demand, from demands by unions because they wanted to limit the number of people who would, were able to work with a journey person, an apprentice in other words. They limited the number of apprentices so they would keep the numbers of a particular trade, let's take plumbing or electrical, you, you pick whatever one you want. Uh, if the numbers didn't quite meet demand, their wages could stay up. And they also had to join unions, so therefore... Union membership stayed up, therefore dues stayed up. But if you allowed a contractor to have 10 apprentices, I mean, I, I don't know if it's realistic or not, but let's say for the sake of this discussion, let's say that 10 apprentices is reasonable for one journeyman to keep an eye on. Maybe it's not, let's say it's five. 10 sounds like a lot. But for every one journeyman, you could have five apprentices, and a guy has a staff of 50 electricians. You know, he can hire a lot of guys and give them the hours they need to be able to become journeymen as electricians or plumbers or carpenters or whatever trade you want to mention. Okay, that's why we have the College of Trades to make sure that doesn't happen. So let's unfetter um, the marketplace, remove that collar from around these, these uh, contractors' necks so that they can go out and hire more people and put more people to work in the trades because we have a shortage in that area. So that, that accomplishes two things. Lowers the cost of running the business because somebody's got to administer that. And you know that doesn't happen for free. Okay? And now you have businesses able to operate with one less foot on the back of their neck. I won't even get into minimum wage. So anyway, I just thought I'd share that with you. I'm going to take a short break here, play a couple commercials, and then we'll be right back with more after this. EMM Group is the authorized Integraspec distributor for the Greater Ottawa area, providing technically advanced insulated concrete farms. The design virtually eliminates waste while providing the ultimate energy-efficient, quiet homes and structures. With over 40 years' experience in the concrete industry, EMM offers the best product to homeowners and contractors. Canadian-made Integraspec is now being used worldwide. More info can be found at Integraspec.com. Don't consider building any other way. Call your ICF specialist. 613-835-2600. 
For 17 years, I've been taking my cars to Irwin's Automotion. 17 years ago, Irwin was renting space on the corner of Bank and Heron. His encyclopedic knowledge of all things mechanical and his no-bull honesty has resulted in his second move. He now operates a huge facility on Cleopatra, eight bays and an expert staff that operate all in the same wavelength. Honesty, integrity, try to save the customers some money and headaches, but fix it right the first time. Irwin's Automotion, 34, Cleopatra. Tell them Council sent you. That'll make them smile. All right. Let me ask you a question. And I, I'm of two minds on this. There was a, a nurse out in Salt Lake City, Utah, who had a police officer bring in an unconscious person. Um, and she didn't want, she said it was against the law for her to draw a blood sample. Let me tell you what. Let me just share this with you. The latest on a nurse in Utah who was handcuffed by police over a blood draw. Um, okay, that's the headline. Salt Lake City police say, say an officer seen on video dragging a screaming nurse from a hospital and handcuffing her while he put will be put on paid administrative leave after prosecutors called for a criminal investigation. Police Chief Mike Brown said in a statement Friday that his department will comply with the investigation into Detective Jeff Payne. He arrested nurse Alex Wubbles after she refused to allow blood to be drawn from an unconscious victim in line with hospital policy. Salt Lake County's Unified Police Department will will run the criminal probe into Payne's actions on July 26, which got widespread attention after Wubbles and her lawyers released a dramatic video Thursday. Brown and the mayor of Salt Lake City have apologized for the incident and changed their policies to mirror hospital protocols. An Idaho police department is thanking a Utah, thanking a Utah nurse for stopping a Salt Lake City officer from obtaining blood sample from one of their reserve officers who was unconscious in a hospital. Okay, so obviously this this individual is unconscious, and the nurse says, "I'm sorry, constable. We cannot take blood from someone who is unconscious." He was angry. He was a belligerent. He dragged her out of the building, handcuffed her, and threw her in the back of the car. So my question to you is this. Police officers, I have a tremendous amount of respect for police officers. But that doesn't mean I give them a complete pass. As a matter of fact, I had an encounter with one Monday. We were bringing home a load of hay on a very old wagon, and I'm pulling it with my truck. And I had my wife behind me with the car with the four-way four wheel flashers on and slow-moving vehicle sign. And one of the wheels, um, this this trailer is about, and I mean is literally about 70 years old, so it's not the newest-looking thing. And one of the back tires is wobbling a little bit. It was firmly attached to the trailer, but when you're pulling it down the road, you know, the the constable was relatively new to the area, so he pulled us over. And he told, told me why. And at the end of it all, he said, well, okay, you know, I said, I'm only going just another mile down the road here, and we'll be where I need to be, and I have to unload this. He said, all right, well, uh, you know, it's not the load's not heavy, and I can see now it's you, you've taken that extra precaution of having your wife with you with the four ways on and all that stuff. In other words, it was a very um, productive, and there was no issues uh, in my exchange with this police officer, which is completely the opposite of what this poor nurse went through. So the question becomes... When an officer oversteps his bounds, and you might even broaden this out into any, uh, broaden this out, but let's let's leave it with the police for a moment. Is it reasonable to expect them 
to take a paid leave of absence or should they be forced to take a um, an unpaid leave of absence until the investigation is over so in other words if there's uh, if, if um, in this case the the constable should uh, some people say the constable should be suspended without pay and uh, if criminal if if this turns into a criminal case then he should stand before a judge and and face the law the same as everybody else i totally agree with that the only part I'm wondering about is this idea about uh, administrative leave. Because here's what I think, based on the story, and that's what I'm going by. Um, the reason he was given administrative leave rather than uh, unpaid leave is because during negotiations with police unions, this is the kind of stuff they bargain for. Now, I don't know the conditions of the union contract that he's working under, or even if that police department is unionized. But I do know that in here in Ontario, that certainly is the case, in a lot of police forces. So is this a, could this be a case of unions meddling and keeping somebody on the payroll who should be uh, either suspended without pay or fired outright? What do you think? Is this union meddling, or is this just a, is this just uh, the police department trying to protect one of its own, and not uh, you know without without financial penalty? Because the other side of the argument that's that's one side, but the other side of the argument is, wait a minute, yes, there's this damning video, but he hasn't had his day in court yet, innocent till proven guilty. Remember, so are we taking the, this idea of punishment too far? Are we going too far? Uh, in by saying he needs to be suspended without pay because he has not been found guilty yet in a court of law. And that's why I'm of two minds of this, because I can see both arguments. I can understand both arguments. I can, I can hear somebody saying, you know something, this guy appears to have done something really stupid. There's no excuse um, that would cover something like this. But as we've learned from our own cases here in Ontario, sometimes the video doesn't tell the whole story. There's more to it. Like, And I'm, I don't know whether this video covers the whole story or not. Like, why was the police officer so agitated? What made him go off and do what he did? Because there's no doubt he did it, okay? And even the, 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 the idea of motive, okay, doesn't negate the responsibility for what he did. You can't just say, well, uh, I punched the guy in the mouth because I was mad, so therefore you can't hold me responsible. No, there might be a mitigating factor because you were mad. The question is, why were you mad? But that doesn't change the fact you punched the guy in the mouth, and you have to be held accountable for that. What we can do is use the uh, motive. Uh, let's say uh, a guy comes home and he finds his wife in bed with another man, and the guy who came home takes the guy who's messing around with his wife and punches him in the mouth. Okay, well, all right. You still assaulted the guy, but it's not that hard to understand why you did it. So a judge might say, yeah, okay, um, we need to look at this. And I think that uh, given the circumstances, your your penalty for punching the guy in the mouth won't be the same as if you just walked up to somebody and cold cocked them on the street. So there's... There's that to keep in mind. And I just, so I, I'm curious what you guys think. 
is this the case of where, uh, you know, which way should we go with this? Do you, would you want a guy like this suspended without pay even though he hasn't had his day in court? Or would you want him suspended with administrative duties behind a desk doing paperwork where at least he's being somewhat uh, productive until this thing runs its course? And if he ends up charged criminally, all right, fine. Uh, then he goes to court, and if he's found guilty, you fire him, sus- you know, you suspend him as a member of the police department. He goes to jail, da da uh, Let the chips fall where they may, in other words. But I really don't know which way to come down on this because I can see both sides of that discussion. And I can understand how people would be, um, people would be, um, I think, justified in making both cases. Now, in this particular case, because of the, you know, the, ad, the, the, the simply outrageous behavior of the, of the officer in question here, um, it's just, and I, I don't know. So you let me know in the comments or send me an email or something like that what you think. i got to play another couple of commercials because it's the bottom of the hour, and then we'll be back with more right after this. Ron Barr, General Manager and CEO of the Greater Ottawa Truckers Association, the voice of independent truckers in the Ottawa area and proud supporters of Nick at Night. Every day we go to work to help build a better eastern Ontario, and safety is our top priority. Every start of the shift, our drivers perform inspections on their truck, so we ensure that our drivers go home to their families each night, and you, the public, have confidence that the big truck beside you is safe. If you have any issues relating to any size truck, I encourage you to contact me at 613-738-1639. Let's build a better, fatality-free Ottawa together. For 17 years, I've been taking my cars to Irwin's Automotion. 17 years ago, Irwin was renting space on the corner of Bank and Heron. His encyclopedic knowledge of all things mechanical and his no-bull honesty has resulted in his second move. He now operates a huge facility on Cleopatra, eight bays and an expert staff that operate all in the same wavelength. Honesty, integrity, try to save the customers some money and headaches. But fix it right the first time. Irwin's Automotion, 34, Cleopatra. Tell them Council sent you. That'll make them smile. All right. Now, I have another story. Where is it? Oh, yes. Brought to you by your favorite government, your Ontario government. Do you remember uh, a couple of years ago they brought out this automatic thermostat and it was supposed to save you all kinds of money and do a great thing? Well, apparently they weren't satisfied with that. They're going to spend $377 million. Uh, Oh, here's the headline. Ontario creates new $377 million green fund with money from cap-and-trade program. The province plans to hand out smart thermostats to eligible homeowners for free under the new program and promised more benefits shortly. First of all, there's no such thing as free. This thing is expensive. This thing is ridiculous because it's carbon... just so you understand, if you don't already understand, man, I think most people do, but in case there's anybody out there who doesn't understand, carbon credit trading is nothing more than shuffling paper to keep on doing what you're doing. It has nothing to do with the environment. It's all about moving money around. And that's all this is about. All right. Uh, it's from Toronto. Eligible Ontario households will be able to get smart thermostats for free on a first-come, first-served basis under a new government program, along with more benefits to follow for small businesses and clean tech companies. Environment Minister Chris Ballard announced August 30th that $377 million in proceeds from Ontario's cap-and-trade auctions this year will be used to establish 
<coughs> excuse me, a Green Ontario fund. Would it make more sense to you? Would it make more sense to you? Even if you even if you liked the cap and trade system, which I think is nothing but a farce. But any money it generates, if you had a debt, I mean a staggering debt that you weren't sure you were you were going to be able to pay off, wouldn't it be financially responsible of you to take uh, this windfall and put it towards that debt? Wouldn't that make sense? We're $315 billion in the hole. Now, I know $377 million is nothing compared to $315 billion. But we got to start paying it back somehow. So would it make more sense to actually put that money against the debt rather than throw it away by talking about, uh, by uh, putting it into these thermostats who do nothing but spy on you in your within your own home? That's what these things are about. It has nothing to do with you saving money on hydro. If they cared about you saving on money on hydro, they never would have enacted the Green Energy Act. All right. Uh, Anne just made a comment here I want to share with you. I can see both sides. She's talking about the constable uh, out of Utah. I can see both sides, but also if they are going to get suspended with pay, well, let them work behind the desk and earn their money. And if they go to court, they should pay their own lawyer, not uh, not out of tax dollars. And maybe if they have to pay out their out of their pockets, the bad apples won't be committing the same mistakes over and over. Yeah, you know, you might have a point there, Ann. Uh, I think it was Anne. yeah, Ann. Um, that makes a lot of um, that makes a lot of sense. Make them pay for their own lawyers, just like you and I do. Um, there's got to be one set of rules for everybody, and that's one of the reasons why I like what Ann had to say. I thought I would share it with you now. Where did you go? Oh, yeah, here it is. So anyway, you know, the other thing about this story about the thermostats, which I find funny, is they want to help small businesses at the same time they're strangling them. I mean, you've got the minimum wage coming up, and you've got some of the fairy tale stuff these people are talking about, how they're actually going to be creating. Um, Kathleen Wynne was on a, uh, on a TV show with um, Steve Pakin on uh, uh, what, I can't remember the name of the show. Anyway, and he had a long, uh, a long interview with her, and, and she was saying that, oh, the minimum wage hike is actually going to create jobs and employ more people. Is this woman from Earth? Does she actually believe what she says? I just, for the life of me, cannot understand how she can say these things with any grain of, of, you know, self-respect. I just don't get it. Anyway, uh, Don, wants to w- Don wants to weigh in on this uh, story about the um, constable, so let me read her comment. She says, My husband is a retired Ottawa police officer and was shocked at the treatment of the nurse. We believe he should have been suspended without pay for his overzealousness by grabbing and handcuffing the nurse who was following the rules. Yeah... That was my first instinct too. Although I, to me, this this whole suspension with and without pay has a lot to do with union meddling too, and um, be very interested to see if anybody else has some comments on that. Don't be afraid to post them on there, and uh, we'll go, we'll go over them. But this whole idea about these thermostats is is um, it's nothing but a scam, and it's another way to waste money. Um, 
the cap and trade system is a, is a waste of money to begin with. Um, but even what revenue it does generate should go back into the to relieving the debt, not bribing us with un, with um, with our own money. So we'll vote for them because we think they care. If anybody still believes that, uh, boy, I'll tell you. According to this story, Ontario has so far raised about a billion from its first two cap-and-trade auctions. The Liberal government hopes to raise $1.8 billion this year and $1.4 billion a year starting next year. Well, unless, of course, we can kill this thing. Stop wasting money on wasting money. Sarah Petrovan, a senior policy advisor for West Coast Think Tank Clean Energy Canada, said the new fund will ensure proceeds from Ontario cap-and-trade program are put to good use. How about just giving it back to the taxpayer and let them decide what it's meant for? Ontario's successful cap-and-trade auctions have generated millions of dollars to put toward practical solutions to support clean growth. No, they don't. No, they don't. I'm sorry, young lady, they do not. Because if they did, it wouldn't be such a bad idea, but they simply don't. Cap-and-trade is, like I said, nothing about. it's got nothing to do with the environment and everything to do with shuffling paper. And I am fed up with people trying to tell me that it's raining out while they're peeing on my boots. I may be just a kid from Killaloo, but even I can figure out that this cap-and-trade thing is nothing but the world's another piece of the world's biggest scam, this whole global warming nonsense. All right. Let me see what else I got on the plate here for you. Uh, oh, yeah, some of the... Um, oh, yeah, I'm just looking at some of the images now. Um from Hugh, from Irma man oh man what a mess there's a there's a car it's a white car and the only reason you can see it is because it's white it's under about 3 or 4 feet of water there was one one image that stuck really stuck with me when i was looking at the story out of um hurricane harvey out of uh i think it was texas there were a bunch of people in an old age home and the water was like 3 feet deep and there was an old lady who was sitting in a um, a lazy boy, a cloth covered, blue cloth covered lazy boy, and she's sitting there with the water up to her elbows. You imagine, just imagine yourself sitting with your feet up with the thing, so your you know your elbows are two and a half or three feet off the floor, whatever it is, and she's crocheting, just sitting there. Well, they'll come and get me when they get here. And there's another lady sitting just opposite her. She was doing something else, kind of crafty like that too. And she was up to her waist. I mean, it's just the most profound image because here they are in the middle of this disaster, and they're. I suppose the question becomes, what else can you do? Um, let's see. Um, uh, I do, Anthony. Uh, not that I can share yet. I will get to that um, as soon as uh, as there, there's. Yes and no. I can't get into it now. I'll have more later. How's that? Uh, he's just asked me a question about a topic that I can't get into just yet. Oh, uh, yeah, that's Venezuela. Now, this whole doctor's thing, remember something. Uh, going back to the story about the, the um, sprinkling idea. Um, I was listening to um, the news today, and they're talking about um, this changes to tax laws to go after corporations and the way that these uh, small corporations use this income sprinkling to avoid the tax man. Part of the problem is that the tax rate, that all that tells you is that your tax rates are too high and that this is also going to affect a lot of family farms. 
because they're run like corporations. And this is just another very cruel, unnecessary uh, tax grab by the government. All right, let's switch over to the military for a minute because it's a, an issue that I is very near and dear to my heart. Um, and we're talking about the Navy in this case. Now, if you know anything about England, you know that it's been a naval power for hundreds of years. Now, it's not what it once was. There's no doubt about that. But being an island nation, the Navy is the primary uh, arm of the military. They call it the senior service. It's because it's the oldest but also the most important um, branch of the military in an organized sense. They've, you know, uh, we're talking about uh, government-run, organized, and all that kind of thing. Um, but they have come up with a idea about how to fund shipbuilding in a way that actually makes sense. And when I posted this on Facebook, I said, if the British can do this, why can't we? Because we are a maritime nation just as much as Britain is. Most people don't realize that, but that's the truth. Now, get a load of this. A radical shake-up of how warships will be built for the Royal Navy that aims to spread the work around the country has been unveiled by the Ministry of Defense. Proposals floated by industrialist Sir John Parker in his review of the sector last year have been backed by Defense Secretary Sir Michael Fallon in a move intended to deliver budget vessels to the British military that are also aimed at being attractive to foreign buyers. Uh, under the na National Shipbuilding Strategy, Britain will buy five Type 31E general-purpose frigates, a cut-price warship to bolster the Royal Navy's depleted fleet, with the first one intended to enter service in 2023. Sir John recommended the new vessels be built at shipyards around the country using the modular system employed to construct a huge Queen Elizabeth-class aircraft carriers. This saw giant blocks fabricated at sites around the UK before being towed to Rothsyth in Scotland, where they're integrated into a 65,000-ton ship by the Aircraft Carrier Alliance made up of BAE Systems, Babcock, Babcock and Thales, working with the Ministry of Defense. Backing his plans could threaten BAE's near-monopoly on building vessels for the Navy, throwing it open to other entrants to the market, raising concerns about the jobs of the Defense Giant's naval operations focused at the Clyde facilities in Glasgow. We have the same kind of a problem here, or we've only got one or two companies uh, who uh, who do this kind of work? But going and again, go if you go back in history to World War II, Canada went from a ship, a navy in 1939 that encompassed 39 ships and 3,000 men. That was our total navy when we went to war in 1939. And of those 39 ships, only six were anything bigger than a than than a trawler. They were. Um, some destroyers, HMCS Saguenay was one. It was a, a purpose-built, you know, by the Royal Navy for the Canadian Navy. Uh, there was the Skeena, the Saguenay. I can't remember the St. Laurent, I think, was one of them. Uh, anyways, half a dozen of them. And they had a couple little minesweepers, some ancillary vessels, and 3,000 officers and men, and that was it. Between 1939 and 1945, taking into account our losses, we were still able to field or float a 400-ship Navy. We were the third largest Navy in the world. Now, how do we do that? I, I don't want to go back and revisit history just because, you know, I like history. There's a point to this. And the, the point is that what we did, and this is what England is doing now, 
is we scattered shipbuilding all up and down the Great Lakes, all over Nova Scotia, in B.C., wherever there was a puddle, we built a ship in it. And then we floated it out to whatever coast it needed to go to. That's how we did it. We did exactly what the British are doing now. Now, they didn't build them the same way, but they spread the building out across the country. If you take, look at, look at the size of some of our warships now. If you take the MCDVs, or the, what they call the coastal patrol vessels, they're about 150 feet long. They do about 16 knots, which I think is way too slow. But there's no reason inland um, ship, shipbuilding yards, like uh, in Welland as an example, or Hamilton could easily do it, or any place along the Great Lakes with any, you know, with any kind of a size uh, shipbuilding facility, and it wouldn't take long to put up something like that, uh, could ease, easily do this, build, a, build uh, the modules. And as a matter of fact, you wouldn't even... Let me take that back. You wouldn't even need to have the um, idea of having a, um, a proper shipbuilding yard. You could do this if you're building smaller warships. You could easily do this by building it in facilities that are could be thousands of miles. You could do this in Winnipeg. All you need is a big plant with overhead cranes. And you build the modules, right? So let's say that um, Widget, Acme Widgets in Winnipeg decides that they're going to bid on a contract to build the engine room or the engine room module. Or maybe it's the pointy end or the stern drive, or whatever it is, or the flight deck. They could build it there, put it on a rail car, or put the pieces on a rail car, send that rail car to the final assembly yard, and just like Lego blocks, weld them together. That's what they do in England. So if, if the English can do this, why can't we? And this, I think, has some real merit to it, because Canada, like Britain, depends on its navy. And right now, we have 12 surface combatants. We have no more destroyers, no more AORs. We have one uh, refueling ship, which is what an AOR is, uh, which will be finished shortly. And it's going to be amazing, but it's taken, oh, I don't know, three or four years since they cut the first deal to get it to this point, and they didn't build it from scratch. It's a modified container ship. So it wasn't even like they started from the very beginning. So these are the kind of things that that just we could easily, we have tremendous innovation. Canada has always had the ability to be innovative and creative in the way that it does things. But I don't think that that means that unless we think of it, uh, we can't do it any other way. There's no reason why we can't take the idea that we, the same way we used to do in the past, look at the modern version of what England is doing, and then take that and say, okay, let's run with that. How hard would that be? Would it be difficult? Maybe. Okay. But we're not afraid of things that are difficult. We're Canadian, for crying out loud. Look at, what it, look at the kind of courage it takes just to live here. All right. Time for another couple of commercials. I'll be back with more after this. EMM Group is the authorized Integraspec distributor for the greater Ottawa area, providing technically advanced insulated concrete forms. The design virtually eliminates waste while providing the ultimate energy-efficient, quiet homes and structures. With over 40 years' experience in the concrete industry, EMM offers the best product to homeowners and contractors. Canadian-made Integraspec is now being used worldwide. More info can be found at Integraspec.com. Don't consider building any other way. Call your ICF specialist, 613-835-2600. 
For 17 years, I've been taking my cars to Irwin's Automotion. 17 years ago, Irwin was renting space on the corner of Bank and Heron. His encyclopedic knowledge of all things mechanical and his no-bull honesty has resulted in his second move. He now operates a huge facility on Cleopatra, eight bays and an expert staff that operate all in the same wavelength. Honesty, integrity, try to save the customers some money and headaches, but fix it right the first time. Irwin's Automotion, 34, Cleopatra. Tell them Council sent you. That'll make them smile. It helps better when I unmute my microphone so that you can hear me. All right, we've got about four or five minutes left. Um, one of the things, I, I guess, maybe the best way to wrap this show up is just go back to where I started. I'm curious. Are you like me? Do you miss the the kind of movies that Disney was famous for? And I talked about the um, the movie Swiss Family Robinson. So that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. Um, do you miss those kinds of movies that are... Let's face it; they're not sophisticated like um, the Born Supremacy. I'm just picking one off the top of my head. Uh, you know, they're not—they're not that kind of a movie. They're simple. They're enjoyable. They're—it it really is a chance to just relax, let your mind go. You don't have to spend hours trying to figure out who done it. You know, with the candlestick in in the uh, in the parlor. Um, you just can watch it and enjoy it. This, like, look, whether you enjoyed that movie or not, there's dozens of them out there that are made in the same kind of way. Disney was very famous. Another classic is, um, and we did this as a play in high school, is Sound of Music. I mean, you know, relatively simple plot, not all that difficult to follow. It was the kind of movie that was something that uh, anybody, you could sit down. Uh, yeah, Steph. <laughs> <laughs> she stole my idea. <laughs> the Sound of Music. Um, you know, it's a simple plot, relatively easy to follow, not complicated, but a thoroughly engaging and enjoyable event. You can sit your family down in front of it. You can watch it, and you don't have to worry about a bedroom scene popping out. Of, like one of the shows I, I've been really enjoying is Game of Thrones. But Game of Thrones, the first year or two, holy mackerel. You had to have a... You know, some of the stuff that was in that, they could have easily left out or suggested or hinted at, but no, there it is right in your face. And I'm talking about the bedroom scenes and all that nonsense. And it's just like, did you really have to do that? It's such a great story. So you don't have to worry about that in some of these older, like take the original Treasure Island, okay? Another one that's like that. Now, you really want to watch a fun movie, watch the Muppet version of that show. <laughs> My kids... When that movie came out, they, uh, <laughs> what's this now? Uh, that will be me and my family and yours leaving Canada over a mountain as the fascists take over. <laughs> Stephanie's referring to the plot of um, Hills, uh, The Sound of Music, and she says, maybe we'll escape on horses. You know, that reminds me of another great movie that falls into this category, it's called Cow it's called Cowboys by John Wayne. And if you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about. And if you haven't, I, w I don't think I'll spoil it by just giving you just a real nutshell. There's, John Wayne's a rancher. All his hands run off on a gold. Uh, there's a gold rush out west. And they, all his uh, adult, you know, his guys, 
uh, getting ready. He's getting ready to drive his cattle to the railhead, and uh, they all bugger off on him and leave him and his him by himself to drive several thousand heads of cattle, you know, five or six hundred miles across the open prairie to the railhead so he can sell them and make some money. So he goes to the local school and hires a bunch of boys to do it. And the whole story revolves around their adventures. And it's just another one of those great movies that just, you know, there's the fa my favorite line out of that whole movie. There's two of them, actually. One is, have you ever fired that thing? That, that's number one. And number two uh, comes from a guy um, who the bad guys think they're going to hang. And he says, forgive me, Lord, for my slothfulness, because he's, you know, saying his last, getting ready to meet his maker. So he says, forgive me for the men that I have killed and for those that I'm about to. So anyway, it was, uh, it's a great movie. If, if you want to sit down and watch it with your family, if you can find it, by all means do that. And these are the kind of movies that I, I, I really thoroughly enjoy. I like the modern ones too, don't get me wrong. But once in a while, there's nothing wrong. Um, cows won't cross a mountain. Oh, Kevin, have I got news for you. Uh, you know, Kevin, do you remember the series called Nothing Too Good for a Cowboy? That series, as awful as it is, it's Canadian production. And it, oh, it's just, and I say it's awful. Girls love it. Teenage girls just go gaga over it because it's all about horses, right? And I love horses, but the horsemanship in it just is horrible. But anyway, it comes from a book about the most northern ranch in B.C., and I read it, and uh, the story of how they got the cattle to the ranch, they had to drive them over a mountain pass, but the snow was too deep, so they had to wait for a night when it was minus 40, so the frost would be thick enough to bear the cattle's weight as they went over the pass. So yes, they will cross mountains. Just thought I'd, uh, when I saw that, I saw, oh yes, they will. <laughs> <laughs> as far as I know, that ranch is still there. But it's the basis for it. That story is the basis for the modern um, TV series called "Nothing Too Good for a Cowboy." Anyway, so if you're like me, you you love these old movies, and you know what? Uh, there's a time and place. Uh, I I can't tell you how many times I've seen "Hunt for Red October." I can't tell you how many times I've seen "Bridge Too Far," "Muppet Treasure Island." Just oh man. You and your hobbies. <laughs> oh, brother, I do love this. Anyway, so I just wondered if there's anybody else out there like that who has um, a couple of movies that they really enjoy. Even though you've seen it, Kelly's Heroes, I think, is probably one of my all-time favorite movies. And the reason is it's a war flick, but it doesn't take itself seriously. It's almost like a parody of a war flick. I mean, you got a you 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 have a guy called Oddball who's a hippie twenty years before his time. You've got Don Rickles, who is a tech sergeant who's in in the logistics world. You've got Clint Eastwood, who's the former officer turned into got busted down to private. Telly Savalas, the hard bitten uh, sergeant, and a bunch of other supporting characters. It's a great movie, and <laughs> but you are the American Army. Nobody, we ain't. <laughs> if you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't, well, go and watch it because you will enjoy it. That's for sure. All right. Well, I guess that wraps it up for me tonight, folks. Sorry about the technical glitches. We are working on getting these worked out. And uh, I don't know what happened with the uh, sound tonight. I thought I had it beat, 
and it turned out it jumped up and bit me later, so we had to dump the sound. That's unfortunate, but that's the way it goes. All right, with that, I will sign off. In the meantime, we will see you all again next week. Ubiqueritas et amor. Deus ibiest. Good evening. God bless. Don't let anything disturb your peace. And may you have a fair wind and a following sea. Nick at Night is a production of Council Communications. Of all the money that e'er I had, I spent it in good company. And all the harm I've ever done, alas, it was to none but me. And all I've done for want of wit to memory now I can't recall. So fill to me the parting glass. Good night and joy. So fill to me the parting glass And drink a health whate'er befalls Then gently rise and softly call Good night and joy be to you all Of all the comrades that it I have they're sorry for my going away And all the sweethearts that e'er I had They'd wish me one more day to stay But since it fell into my lot That I should rise and you should not I'll gently rise and softly call